This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison and here to set out what's coming in the next seven days is Bunker regular Arthur Snell, former diplomat, ex-head of the International Arm of the Anti-Radicalisation Programme Prevent and commentator on global events. Good morning, Arthur. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Andrew. How are you? I'm all right. I'm not bad. Glad to hear it. We've got a lot to get through. Strange elections in the Czech Republic, Poland and Hungary in conflict with the EU, a possible crunch point on Article 16 and the Northern Ireland Protocol at home. But if you saw the papers on the Conservative commentariat over the weekend, there was only one story and it was get back to the office. Johnson pushed this in his conference speech saying that people would be gossiped about if they didn't return to the office. Google data says numbers of people working from work rather than working from home are down about 30% on pre-pandemic levels. Arthur, where is this push coming from? Why are they so desperate to get people back around water coolers and arguing over who's got the stapler? I think you have to assume that this is the commercial property sector, which I imagine is pretty well plugged in to the Conservative Party, plus all those businesses that exist in city centres basically to service office workers. So Pret-a-Manger, um, by the way, I think the owner of that is is well known to be a Conservative donor and, and those sorts of things. What's really weird about it, of course, is that loads of people have found that they can work effectively and productively from home. And in so doing, they may actually revive those towns and overlook parts of the country that I thought the new Conservatives were so enthusiastic about. There's definitely a kind of political identity line around this as well. There's the idea that somehow at bottom, all workers are kind of shilly-shallying and need to be overseen and need to be at a desk, even though the assumption that people work at desks is also quite revealing because, you know, do a majority of people work in offices? Probably not. Well, I haven't looked at the data, but one of the things that strikes me as rather ironic about this is that the people who literally make a living from turning up to say on TV, on right-wing TV news, or to write articles for the Daily Mail, are almost certainly people who don't work in offices. If you're the kind of person who makes a living from commentating on TV, it's extremely unlikely that you have a normal office. So this is a classic example of a group of people thinking they know what's best for another group of people of which they are not part. Yeah, we did see a bizarre Mail on Sunday headline that said, working from home left us at the mercy of the Taliban. Yes, I hadn't realised that. Um, I, I, I'm very lucky, having worked from home um, you know, for some time now, I'm very lucky the Taliban never came came down my way, but there you go. It's all your own fault for working in slippers that the Taliban uh, took over Kabul. Meanwhile, in proper serious politics, listeners should probably brace themselves for more EU versus the UK fun over Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Agreement. The UK's Brexit minister 
unelected bureaucrat Lord Frost has been agitating for a renegotiation of the deal that he signed and the removal of the European Court of Justice from oversight over the deal. Arthur, what's going on here? From the earliest days, it seemed clear that Frost and Johnson's strategy was to somehow pretend that it was almost somebody else's deal and this deal was completely unsatisfactory and it needed to be renegotiated. I think at the beginning, people, because it's such a sort of barefaced, shameless gambit to try and tear up the, the deal that you negotiated, you brought to the country, you said it was a brilliant deal, you got all the MPs to vote for it and so on. Um, I think at the beginning, people didn't take it very seriously. Uh, but now what Frost is doing is, is a very strange manoeuvre where he's saying, it's clear that we said that this deal wasn't satisfactory because I wrote that in my command paper in July. Now, just a command paper, I mean, it's a sort of grandiose term for a sort of strategy document that some government department produces. But Lord Frost produced that long after the negotiation, long after the deal had been signed and ratified and has the solemn status of international law. They've been casting around for an excuse to throw the deal up in the air. And what they seem to have landed on is the role of the European Court of Justice. Now, in one way, you could say that's not surprising because Brexiters are always going to chafe against the idea of, a, of an EU court having any kind of role in, in some deal that affects the UK. But the reason that the European Court is involved, because what this comes down to is the operation of the European single market on the island of Ireland. And as we all know, the Brexit deal was basically to leave Northern Ireland effectively inside the EU. So those are the, the, the terms on which uh, David Frost seems to want to tear up the deal. The real big question is, is he actually going to hit that nuclear button or is he just threatening it to sort of keep people on their toes? The Americans have made it very clear that they would be extremely unimpressed if this were to happen. You've got the COP26 uh, meeting coming up where, of course, Britain will be once again playing host to huge numbers of, of foreign dignitaries. And it would certainly be a bad look to do something sort of so transgressive at that moment. So I wonder whether the the threat of doing something crazy is still the strategy rather than actually doing the crazy thing. But in a way, at a certain point, if you keep saying this stuff, you, you have to do it uh, eventually. Yeah, the EU is expected to make an offer this Wednesday to cover medicines, animal health measures, customs, chilled meats in particular in Northern Ireland. Are we going to get Britain win the sausage war headlines and EU blinks headlines? Well, I'm sure we will because the EU only has to, to make a statement and the uncritical right-wing media will announce that it's a shocking defeat for the EU and, and, you know, sausage victories. The issue is, of course, that sometimes the, the sort of Daily Mail and the Daily Express don't seem to have got their instructions quite right from, from Downing Street because... David Frost seems to be set on a path which anything less than the removal of the European Court of Justice from the process is unacceptable. So you get these big headlines in the Express and, and elsewhere saying humiliation for EU, victory for the UK. And then Frost pops up a few weeks later saying this is all completely unacceptable. Well, if it's unacceptable, that suggests that there hasn't been a victory. So you know, it, there are so many contradictions in this story, it's hard to know where to begin. I mean, the kind of word from the EU is that everyday Britain seems to have a new demand and a brand new red line. Is the tactic just to annoy Brussels into complying out of weariness? 
Well, what I think the tactic is, and this is very dark and rather cynical, not on my part, but on, on those carrying out the tactic, is I think they've learned from the likes of Trump and Putin that being a bad faith actor actually can play to your advantage if you're in an environment where the other players are playing within the rules. So just 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 to spell that out, the big risk is that by destabilizing the situation in Northern Ireland, you get a deterioration of the security and political situation and ultimately a return to some form of political violence on the island of Ireland, whether it's ultra hardline loyalists attacking the fact that Britain is seen to have left Northern Ireland to become part of the EU, or the reverse, you know, attacking the UK because they're making it too difficult for there to be trade with the rest of Ireland. Now, it seems to me that the ultimately cynical uh, British government have concluded that that risk, the risk of a return of violence, costs the EU more than it costs them. Because the moment it happens, the Brits will be able to say, this is the thing we warned you about. This is what we've all been trying to prevent. And because of you, the EU being so unhelpful and inflexible, uh, we've reached that point. So from a tactical perspective, it seems to me that it is in the interests of Johnson and Frost to see a return of violence or certainly a real threat of violence in Ireland. Now, I accept that lots of people might say, yeah, but they wouldn't do that. You know, that's just too too far off off reservation. But it seems to me that this is entirely in line with the way they've approached this whole thing. And as I say, it's it's actually, it's been seen in other contexts. You know, think of what Donald Trump did on the Iran deal. Think of the way Putin behaves all the time over Crimea and all kinds of other issues. That, that there is a certain advantage if you're a bad faith actor when you're negotiating with someone who is basically playing by the rules. So I, I, that does seem to be what, what Britain is doing. Global depressing thought. Meanwhile, elsewhere in Europe, it's continuing to be fractious. In other areas, listeners may have noticed huge protests in Poland over the weekend over fears that the country could leave the EU in what's been called Polexit. Uh, last week, Poland's top court ruled that Polish law has primacy over EU law. It's the latest in an ongoing row with the EU. About 100,000 people protested across Poland at the weekend, including Donald Tusk, the former president of the European Council, who now leads the opposition party's civic platform. He called on people to defend a European Poland. Arthur, what's going on? Where is this row coming from? Poland's right-wing populist government has, for years now, been politicising the Polish court system. Now, in America, of course, politicised courts are quite normal, but within Europe, it's still considered to be completely against the the fundamental democratic values of a system in which the judiciary should be completely independent from the political branch. They've basically reached a point where the EU is saying that Poland's courts are so politicised that they can no longer be taken as operating under the, the basic rules of the European Union. And for their part, the Polish courts have said it is no longer compatible with European Union membership. So the, the push is coming from both sides. It's very hard to know whether the objective of the right-wing populists that run Poland is to drag Poland out of the EU. That seems very, very unlikely. But they do seem to have sort of set themselves on this course, which 
it's rather like the start of the First World War, a set of events you end up inevitably moving to an outcome that nobody really wants. What we've seen from these protests, and actually if you look at election results in Poland, it's always quite finely balanced. Rather like a certain country we know very well, there's, there is only just a majority on one side or the other on the question of Europe in Poland. And I would be very, very surprised if Poland actually ends up doing the Polexit thing. Basically, it's still a relatively poor country that gains an enormous amount from being in the EU and being allowed a, a you know a, a continental country in terms of all the borders and, and the trade and, and the rest of it. You, you start to think of the complications that we have and we're an island. It's impossible really to imagine uh, Poland doing something as stupid as Brexit. But this has become an incredibly febrile political debate and it, it it's not at this stage at all clear how it will resolve itself. And Victor Orban has, has been backing Poland very vocally and very publicly because much has happened here. Uh, no right-wing politician ever went bust bashing the EU. That's right. And of course, if the EU backs down and to some extent the pressure on them to do so is immense because it, you, if you if Poland were to leave, which I don't think would happen, but if it did happen, not that long after Britain has left, you you are then that Britain was always the awkward squad. If you you then have a completely different space where the the question of what the EU is for and whether it's a sustainable union starts to be a much more live question. So there's a lot of pressure therefore on the EU to concede, to let Poland get away with something. And that's brilliant for Viktor Orban, who, of course, doesn't like the idea of independent courts. And it's brilliant for the uh, Czech prime minister, who we we might be talking about a bit later, who also has a certain attitude to um, independent institutions. And ultimately, it is, of course, notable that in the world, there is this big global struggle between politicians who don't who are trying to attack independent institutions whether it's Trump in America Johnson in this country Putin so this is a very very difficult moment for the EU and traditionally the EU has tended to seek compromise it's by definition a, an organization based on compromise but i think they're they're finding themselves realizing that you can't really compromise on this issue and this is why it's come to such a head well let's talk about the, the czech elections as well you just mentioned uh, the czech republic there's been an upset there the billionaire populist prime minister andrei babish suffering a surprise defeat and then his his key ally the country's president milos zeman is suddenly taken into intensive care what is happening here this seems like a bizarre turn of events it does so starting off with anton babish he featured last week in all the reporting around the Pandora Papers, the leak of financial documents of how the rich and famous hide their money, evade taxes, usually uh, with the help of British overseas territories. One of the highest profile figures in, in that story was this Czech prime minister. He's a very intriguing figure. He's a billionaire. He, you know, There's a sort of Berlusconi side to this story. He owns newspapers and other things. He is a populist. He's close to Russia. It is certainly on the record that he was an agent of the Czech uh, intelligence service during the communist era. He may well have also been an agent of the KGB. Uh, that is still uh, not clear. So this is a very intriguing and comp- complex character. He was expected to romp home in the elections, uh, w- which happened last week, and he didn't. He lost. 
maybe he lost because of a reaction against the news that he was was a, a, a avoiding taxes uh, through the use of offshore jurisdictions. Who knows? But anyway, so that was one shock uh, to the Czech system. And then the second shock is that in their system, where you have a, a president who is largely non-executive, but plays a very important role during a change of government and the formation of a new ruling coalition, the president, who's never enjoyed good health and is extremely close to Anton Babish, some would say that he's even in his pocket, this is the president Milos Zeman, he has fallen ill and is in hospital, but he's very, very seriously ill, may, may not be likely to recover. So you now have a situation where the person who's just lost the election can continue as prime minister because there is no president to appoint anybody else or, or no president in, 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 in action. There is, uh, under the constitution, as you'd expect, there are various people further down the hierarchy who, who are entitled to stand up for the president at a certain point. But basically, the power appears to remain with the sitting prime minister. So it's a story with all kinds of potential for conspiracy and intrigue. It feels a bit like the plot of an interesting you know, political thriller that, that we might enjoy reading. It will be fascinating to see how this thing unfolds in the coming days and weeks. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Back home, the big Westminster event of the week is going to be the publication of the Joint Report of the Health and Social Care and Science and Technology Select Committee's Coronavirus Lessons Learned. This is the one that Dominic Cummings gave that damning evidence to where he slagged everybody off and said they were all absolutely useless. Arthur, do you think we're going to be getting anything useful from this? This is going to be the first round of assessment of the UK's COVID response. Or do you think we're going to get a Cummings circus again? Because a lot of it's going to hinge on whether what he said is, is supportable by evidence. Well, the Cummings stuff in particular... I'm sure that will be the first thing when the when the report drops, everyone will be frantically sort of going through it to see if he did provide evidence because he suggested in the hearing that he had documents and paperwork. Obviously, I don't know if he delivered those. If he didn't, that seriously undermines his credibility and rather tends to the idea that he's an extremely bitter man, you know, howling at the moon with his little blog and not quite the... Uh, behind-the-scenes puppet master that he wants us to think he is. I think, to, to answer your perhaps more important question, which is, will this have some value? Will this be um, an, an important moment? I think it's fairly important. Don't forget, this is the committee chaired by Jeremy Hunt, who was always a seemingly critical but serious analyst of the of the 
COVID situation. Now, Hunt, of course, has his own record to defend. Some, If you go back into history and say to what extent was the NHS and associated bodies ready for a pandemic, then you're talking about the era of Hunt as health secretary. But nonetheless, I think this seems to be a serious committee that was trying to start at least what is a serious job. And and I suspect that even if you put aside the Cummings revelations, there'll be some useful and important data in there. Meanwhile, Facebook is enduring probably its worst period since the Cambridge Analytica scandal in 2018. Last week, a former employee, Frances Haugen, outed herself on TV as the leaker of internal Facebook documents and then went before Senate where she said that Facebook deliberately makes users angry and less sympathetic to others, does little or nothing to stop the spread of misinformation, knows full well that Instagram damages teenagers' mental health and much more. Facebook shares tumbled, and then surprisingly there was an outage in the very same week. Where do you think the state of play is with Facebook at the minute, um, Arthur? Because it seems that US authorities actually finally understand it now and don't just think uh, ask questions like, how does a free service make money and stuff like that? Yeah, it, it seems that people are becoming very realistic about what harm social media can cause. I mean, one of the things I find myself wondering is everybody I know who has teenage children, myself included, knows perfectly well that Instagram, whilst potentially important to a young person's life, has also the potential to cause them intense misery. So the idea that Facebook didn't know this, to me, is is just is just nonsense. Of course they knew. Now the question is what they did with that information. So I, to me, that didn't feel like a particularly stunning revelation. And and similarly, it seems to me that all social media, in different ways, has a capacity to spoil people's lives. And Facebook is just the biggest one. It's not necessarily the worst one. But I think what's happened is in the political space, for a variety of reasons, Facebook has run out of road. It really doesn't have any friends anymore. It's perhaps easy to understand why, because for a long time, these social media platforms were seen as sort of liberal Californian left-leaning um, entities. But then, of course, Facebook in particular has been a place for the exchange of extreme right-wing uh, disinformation and conspiracy views. And so it seems that Facebook, as I say, doesn't have any political friends left in the US system. So I think the big question would be, will it be broken up? Will it be forced to divest both WhatsApp and Instagram? It's certainly the case that when Facebook went down, the, the outage, which of course may be completely unrelated to these revelations, but it all seemed to be very confusing that it was happening at the same time, it was seen the extent to which people are completely reliant on WhatsApp, particularly in countries where um, standard telephony services are not very reliable. And you start to wonder, does it make sense for one company to own the, all these different brands and so on? So I wonder if that's that's one of the directions they're going to go in. And then, of course, there's the question of whether or not you regulate in some way the algorithms that sit behind social media systems. And of course, as I said already, it's not just Facebook, is it? YouTube is, is a place where people often end up starting looking at innocuous content and end up down a dark hole. Uh, it seems that society is perhaps far too slowly coming to terms with the idea that governments need to be involved, because if we don't get involved, we seem to be creating 
a real dystopian world. A friend of mine said last Monday was a really bad day for doing your own research. <laughs> a few before we finish up, the Met has decided it will take no action against Prince Andrew over the accusations of sexual assault from the Jeffrey Epstein accuser, Virginia Giuffre. Are we surprised by this development? Well, I don't feel very surprised. There was all this hard talk from the Met saying that no one is above the law and we're going to look into this. And then literally two days later, they've decided there's nothing to be done. Now, of course, it may be that there is, it's not possible for them to gather evidence that meets the criminal threshold. But one does rather feel that it is not uncommon for, for British law enforcement to take this view that uh, it's not possible when the rich and famous and powerful people are involved. His reputation is destroyed, though, surely? I think so. And, and I've, I've, I've seen reports that, for example, Prince William basically wants him never to return to public life. And if you were Prince William, you would you would see why that would make sense. There's, there's nothing useful that he can bring to the party anymore. And he may have other skeletons that are waiting to be discovered. Later this week, Newcastle United will play their first game since being bought by the Saudis against Spurs. The debate's already going against them, Arthur. As someone who is a complete football freak, I know you are. What's your geopolitical take on this one? Is it possible that this may be a big money takeover too far? It might be. I, On one hand, I, I had a little bit of a debate on Twitter, which is ironic because, as you've noted, I'm not really much of a football aficionado. <laughs> That there are other football club owners, both uh, countries and individuals, who are pretty dodgy types. But it is it is a fair point that nobody actually tricked a citizen of their own country into entering a consulate and then cut them into pieces and fed them into an incinerator. That is a uniquely Saudi uh, speciality, and so it is pretty ghastly. And of course, the there is also something ghastly about a system, and I'm talking about the British system, that allows this ridiculous fiction that, well, of course, the 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 entity that purchased Newcastle was the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, the PIF, and that's separate from MBS, the Crown Prince, and therefore it's okay. Now, anybody who's had even a passing interest in Saudi Arabia over the last few years will be fully aware that the entire system is under the iron grip of Mohammed bin Salman. And the idea that the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia operates with independence and doesn't have any influence from the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is is so ludicrously, offensively ridiculous. And so it seems to me that if that's the kind of nonsense that passes when one of these major transactions is made, it does say that Really, there is there is nothing or nobody who couldn't who couldn't buy a football club. But what do I know? Um, the people of Newcastle, and I'm I'm not questioning their their attachment to to democracy and human rights, seem very happy about it. And um, as someone said, you know, the fans don't choose the owner. So it it the difficulty is, you know, we we, we should reserve our distaste and anger not for anybody in Newcastle but for the for the people in Saudi Arabia who behave in this way I predict that Spurs fans will sing there's only one Jamal Khashoggi I'm sure they will and 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 you know all power to their to their voice boxes because it it is what happened you know was a hideous act and one that all too quickly the world found ways to forget about so that we could get back to selling them arms and going to their conferences and all the rest of it 
Finally, a really great Arthur Snell story. A Maryland couple have been arrested, accused of selling nuclear secrets, including secrets hidden on an SD card concealed inside a peanut butter sandwich. Jonathan and Diana Tobe were allegedly attempting to sell information about the design of nuclear reactors on American submarines to somebody that they thought was an agent of another country, but actually turned out to be an undercover FBI agent. Arthur, what does this story tell us and when is it coming to Netflix? Well, it can't come soon enough. Some listeners may have been fans of that series, The Americans, about the the, the, the couple living in suburban uh, Washington, D.C., who were, in fact, Russian uh, spies. And, and, of course, it ran for numerous series and a very uh, brilliant ending, wonderful series. Anyway, this seems to be a real-life version of that. The husband was a nuclear engineer, I think, working in the Department of Defense, Pentagon, involved in the design and development of the nuclear reactors that go on submarines. These will, of course, be the same nuclear technology which um, the AUKUS uh, alliance is is planning now to share with the Australians. They obviously decided, this couple, that they needed a bit more money. Now, there are lots of case studies in history of uh, people getting into espionage purely because they want to make money. It's not clear from this case whether the couple ever authentically were dealing with a foreign government and then the FBI managed to insert themselves into the system or whether right from the outset uh, they they were actually always uh, dealing with a with an FBI agent but whatever the story at, at a certain point the FBI were in control with this relationship they knew what was happening the couple still thought they were dealing with a foreign intelligence agency and as you mentioned Andrew one they they, they were using dead drops to, to leave SD cards with all this secret information on dotted around in various places. And one of these, the SD card was inside the peanut butter sandwich. So it's just very lucky that there wasn't a passing seagull that picked up the sandwich and flew off with it. And they were being paid in Bitcoin. So it it's a story that's got everything. It must be uh, only a, a few months before the uh, TV producers are, are doing the treatment for the um, the Netflix series. Was that sandwich stolen by a seagull or was it a drone disguised as a seagull? That's oh, for episode yeah. three. That's the big reveal of episode three. Arthur, thanks for joining me uh, early in the morning for this parade of misery. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to listen to more Bonker, you can get Arthur and Ross Taylor's daily about James Bond from the weekend. Do we still need James Bond going into the 21st century? It's really good. It's a fantastic listen, but definitely don't listen unless you've already seen No Time to Die because there are spoilers aplenty in it. Arthur, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Listeners. Remember, you can always back us on Patreon to get the podcasts early and without adverts. We'll be back tomorrow with the panel show. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a podcast production. <laughs>